Burning Bucks. Burning Bucks. Burning Bucks. Welcome to episode one of Burning Books, a podcast dedicated to discussing, celebrating, exploring, etc. Great books, very good books, books in which there's something to appreciate or admire, as well as books that are the opposites of all those things. As this is the first episode, I thought we'd start with a fantastic book, and that is 2011's Leaving the Atocha Station by Ben Lerner. don't know about you, but when I'm getting to the end of the book, I'll look towards the next one that I'm going to read. But then when I'm done and I pick up that next book, I'll sometimes find I don't actually want to read it. So what I'll do then is look through my shelves and pick some other books up at random, read the first paragraph or so, and see what grabs me. And by grabs me, I don't mean it has to start with a shooting a body or a crisis or in some way express the climax of the book in the first three words. What I mean is that the story is told in a voice that, for lack of a better term, I find charming. It's like an invitation you can't refuse even if you don't know what you're actually being invited to. In the case of leaving the Atocha station, there was nothing charming, nothing appealing or inviting about the first few paragraphs, and I repeatedly skipped over it. But the book was recommended to me by someone I trust, and it is short, and I favor short reads. So I decided to go back to those first few paragraphs, which became the first few pages, and then the next few pages, and pretty soon I was hooked. In a word, what was unappealing about the narrator of the book, Adam Gordon, is he is a slacker, a rank slacker, a person who is nonchalantly flushing his talents down the can and can think of nothing better to do than to watch them swirl around the bowl until they disappear. Right off the bat, the reader learns Adam is an Ivy League college student who's on a year abroad in Spain, thanks to a grant, and he's doing his best, which actually means his worst, to avoid fulfilling the terms of the grant. Whether it's by not writing his poetry or not doing his research or not learning to speak the language, Adam puts almost all his working energy into not working. And yet, even now, as I try to dredge up Adam's negative qualities, it's hard to get too worked up about them. And there's a simple reason for that. It's because the worse Adam shows himself to be, the better the book becomes. And Adam does get worse. He is a drug user, okay, no judgment, but he's an annoying, self-pitying drug user, and you can definitely judge that. He misuses his prescription drugs. At a certain point, he confesses he may not need his prescription drugs. Even though he is fraught with anxiety over every aspect of his existence, from whether the girl he is seeing actually likes him to whether art can elicit a profound effect in a viewer or reader, this anxiety may be nothing more than a performance. Uh, Adam is a liar in all facets of his life. He lies about his feelings and he lies about his thoughts. He borrows a traumatic episode from somebody else's life and retells it as an aspect of his own life to gain sympathy from people around him. The thing is, Adam tells us all these things about himself, and he does so in the most precisely calibrated, the most 
stinging prose. Leaving the Atocha Station has the most consistently engaging writing I've read in a really, really long time. And it beautifully illustrates the point that what can be seen as ugly or repugnant in life can be made beautiful in art. The more Adam craps on himself, the better and more exciting it is to read about it. I want to give you an example of this, so I'm going to include an excerpt uh, just to set this up. Adam and one of his two girlfriends in the book, Isabel, are visiting Toledo. Um, They've gotten into a fight because Isabel has pointed out that the poetry Adam has thus far managed to produce has nothing to do with the project he says he's on. The project is never very well laid out in the book, but it has something to do with researching poets and poetry written around the time of the Spanish Civil War. So while Adam and Isabel are in Toledo, they get into a fight. As we walked around the giant structure, which had to be largely rebuilt after the war, she recounted facts I barely followed about historical figures of whom I'd never heard. Then she began to ask me questions about my project, which had never interested her before. How did you choose Spain over, for example, Chile? I was surprised to find myself inclined to defend a project I'd never clearly delineated, let alone ever planned to complete, as opposed to conceding its total vacuity. The language of poetry is the exact opposite of the language of mass media, I said meaninglessly. But why are Americans studying Franco, she asked, gesturing toward a group of Americans being led around the Alcazar, instead of studying Bush? She said it as if every American tourist were planning a monograph on El Caudillo. The proper names of leaders are distractions from concrete economic modes. I was trying to sound deep, hoping concrete and mode were cognates. My limited stock of verbs encouraged general pronouncements. Why aren't you studying the American economic mode? She was angry. You can't study a mode of production directly. And with my manner, I said, I am delivering a fact so obvious it pains me. I'm sure the people of Iraq are looking forward to your poem about Franco and his economy. It was the first unkind thing she'd ever said to me. I met this with silence so as to allow her to imagine an array of responses I was in fact incapable of producing. And I held this silence as we left the Alcazar and descended back into the town toward the cathedral. Okay, that's that's great stuff. But still greater and maybe more indicative of how Adam operates is how he responds to the uncomfortable silence that follows the fight. I could feel the initial creep of panic, and as I reached around in my bag for a yellow tranquilizer, I encountered one of my notebooks, which I took out. I found a pen and quickly jotted down the idea about the dusk and the cathedral, aware and encouraged that Isabel was watching as I wrote. I arranged my face into a look of intense concentration, a look that implied I had a lightning flash of intellection, that there was no time to waste on speech as I hurried to give my insight a more enduring form. Isabel broke our silence, maybe half an hour old, to ask what I was writing, and I said I'd had an idea for a poem, possibly an essay. She waited for me to elaborate, which I didn't, and I believed she looked with real curiosity at my notebook as I returned it to my bag. This, I thought to myself, as we finished our circuit around the cathedral and emerged into the darkling street, would allow me to retain my negative capability. I could displace the mystery of my speech onto my writing, the latter perhaps recharging the former. If our conversations were no longer shot through with possibility, if what I said no longer resonated on many potential levels simultaneously, what I wrote in a language she could not read would have to preserve my aura of profundity. And since the raw material for these notes that were the raw material for poems emerged out of our time together, 
she would in some important, if unnameable sense, have a hand in their genesis. There would be traces of her presence, she might imagine, in subject or formal process. Indeed, if the poems did not prove powerful, maybe she shared in the responsibility, as it would mean, if she had faith in my talent, that our time together failed to inspire me. And why wouldn't she have faith in my talent, given that I'd attended a prestigious university and received a prestigious fellowship? I was so calmed and encouraged by this new narrative, I forgot about the tranquilizer. That is delicious, Ben Lerner. That is just, that is delicious. Narcissism is meant to be this good, which is why I don't really see it as a fault. This leads me to a further observation about the prose in this magnificent book, and that is when Adam Gordon speaks, he is able to convey hollowness and profundity, greatness and meanness of spirit in single sentences, sometimes even in single words. It's not like he sways between the two poles. The two poles are merged into one. That's why, as I was trying to say earlier, the lower you get into the nebulous innards of Adam Gordon's morally corrupt mind, the more wonderful and exciting it is as a reader. And I don't just mean wonderful in the sense of being wicked, um, wicked in the first definition sense of wicked, or anything like that. I mean wonderful in the sense that Adam's narcissism, anxiety, self-loathing, etc. is sublime and pathetic at once. Reading this novel reminded me strongly of being at my day job, which is in academia. Only there can you feel as though you dwell in the highest spheres of insight in the world, and yet, so what? You know, one second you're unlocking the absence that is part of the presence that is absence, but you're still a very long way from making this discovery meaningful in reality to the people who ride the bus with you in the morning, uh, to the people in your family, uh, anything really. Leaving the Atocha station really gets to the heart of this world and dwells in this chasm. Um, at its best, it's like being at the center of all activity and then looking around and seeing that nothing's actually going on. This is all part of the duality that is at the heart of this book. This two-sidedness is also part of a couple other aspects of the book. Um, two things that Lerner spends a lot of time investigating, art and politics, and I'm going to talk about those now. Um, when Lerner is talking about art, he is definitely talking about art with a capital A, and his investigations are largely into the ineffectiveness of art. He quotes Auden in writing that poetry, which is Adam's chosen art form, poetry makes nothing happen. In Adam's case, that nothing is an actual thing. Art has for him a negative power. Adam cleverly skewers people who claim to have profound experiences with art. He notes that he knows some of these people and they're not any different after these profound experiences than they were before. There is a scene where Adam puts this theory into action when he observes, and by observes I mean vivisex, a Spanish poet giving a reading. The poet's name is Tomas. Tomas looked less like he was going to read poetry and more like he was going to sing flamenco or weep. He did not say thank you or good evening or anything, but instead paused dramatically as if to gather his strength for what would be by any measure a heroic undertaking. He had shoulder-length hair that kept falling in his eyes as he arranged his papers, and he kept smoothing it back with a gesture I found studied. He struck me as a caricature of himself, a caricature of El Poeta. A few more people were trickling into the gallery, and he looked at them gravely until they found seats. 
Then he looked back down at his paper, looked back up at the crowd, and when the silence had intensified to his liking, he uttered what I assumed was the title of his first poem, C. To my surprise, this poem was totally intelligible to me, an Esperanto of clichés. Waves, heart, pain, moon, breasts, beach, emptiness, etc. The delivery was so cloying, the thought crossed my mind that his apparent earnestness might be parody. But then he read his second poem, Distance. Mountains, sky, heart, pain, stars, breasts, river, emptiness, etc. I looked at Arturo, and his face implied he was having a profound experience of art. This goes on, and it's one of the many fantastic passages in this book. Tomas becomes increasingly histrionic as he reads what Adam calls his terrible poems, and all the while the audience is enraptured. What enraptures Adam, though, is how bad the poetry is, and perhaps even more importantly, how little it affects him in any way. This sense of being at a remove from the world of thought, feeling, meaning, as these things are generally construed, extends to the politics of the book. And by politics, I mean with a small p. There's lots of talking about political parties and ideologies and movements, but politics in this book is mostly about talking the talk, and when it comes to walking the walk, they'll do that if the walk is not scheduled for the same time as a party or gallery opening, etc. When they do find time to protest, that protest can come in the form of putting black felt on pictures hanging in gallery walls, though not on the tags that show the artist's names and selling prices. Compare this present-day Spain to the Spain that Adam Gordon was meant to be researching, the Spain of the 1930s of the Civil War that attracted dedicated artists and thinkers and brought in legions of fighters from foreign countries because what was happening in Spain at that time mattered, mattered enough for them to sacrifice their lives. Now today, there's nothing worth dying for or caring about, really, even when people are actually dying. Like so many of the simple comparisons in leaving the Atocha station, this one is terrible to behold, but feels very good to read about. Unfortunately, there comes a time when the beautiful jello in which the book puts the reader dries up. And I'm not going to give away too much, but the something is spelled out in the title of the book. Of course, whether the thing that happens, the event, which is undoubtedly meaningful in reality, is meaningful to Adam or any of his friends in the book is debatable. This event is like a poem or a work of art or anything that fails to elicit any kind of uncomplicated, deeply felt response. But when this thing does happen, it changes the air pressure in the book. Adam is stirred, slightly, in increments. But it's enough that the spell of his self-loathing is broken. He turns back to poetry. He starts to speak in fluent Spanish. He stops lying as much. He becomes, if only marginally, the person he's supposed to be. It's not like he changes significantly. There's no watershed or anything like that. But something does happen. He begins to believe in the things he so readily and brilliantly dismissed. To this point in the book, the author has made an incredible success of looking at failure. Now he looks at success, and the book becomes, though not a failure, just a little less interesting. This move from negative to positive and hopeless to hopeful, if only on a superficial level, wasn't necessary. The reader didn't need these things contrasted or separated. They were much more interesting when they were rolled up together, which is why it feels 
frustrating um, in a book that is so tightly written for something superfluous to take over. Let me put it to you this way. Does your favorite piece of music, your favorite song, have a plot? And even if it does, is that your favorite aspect of that song? Or isn't it more the melody, the harmony, rhythm, use of instruments? You can't always judge literature by the standards of music, no matter what Thomas Mann said. But in this case, in the case of leaving the Atocha station, I think you can. This writing, at its best, is music. And by introducing plot, or rather by making plot predominant, Lerner tunes out what had made the work successful to that point, the near indescribable beauty he created out of arranging words, regardless of whether those words headed anywhere. Plotlessness is usually a pejorative term, and I admit it does sound bad to say a work has a weak or bad plot or no plot. But in the case of leaving the Atocha station, plotlessness was the best thing about the book, because it let all the other parts of writing, the rhythm, diction, structure, pace, take over. And they can be beautiful things when in the hands of a master like Ben Lerner. By no means have I covered the breadth of this amazing, amazing book. What I've tried to do is give you a sense of what it's like. If you give it the shot that I eventually did, I'm certain you'll find something that occupies your thoughts after you've turned the final page, which is the highest praise I can give to any work. And with that sentiment and looking forward to whatever learner has next, unless it's a book of poems, which it probably will be, I'm going to sign off. Thank you for listening. If you want to contact me, you can send me notes, nasty and nice, on Twitter, at burningbookspod, and via email. The address is burningbookspod at gmail.com. My thanks to Hakan Ozgan for the music. There are several ways to thank someone. So, let's start with the easiest. Teşekkürler. And as always, go Jays. to have been on Litopia, a great program, and I hope it will help my book, The Sins of the Father, which is in every good bookshop right now.